What is going on, everyone? Bill's here, bringing you the podcast. Once again, we're going to be cracking some new cases here in today's podcast. And for this one, to celebrate the new release, I'm going to be doing a pretty much a pretty much a good review slash overview slash cracking case of Ready Player One. So, if you guys have not heard, Ernest Cline, the author of the book, has just uh, released the sequel, Ready Player Two. Kind of a obvious sequel title, of course, kind of an original, but yeah. So he just released that a few days ago, and so to celebrate and coincide with the release of that. I want to give an analysis on both the book and the film, and talk about what makes them good, also what makes them terrible. We're gonna crack a little bit into that. Talk about what goes on there. So, I mean, there was a lot of inspiration for sure with this book. You know, if you look at the first book, most of it was actually branded as a Willy Wonka meets the Matrix, but it's definitely a lot more Willy Wonka, and you'll begin to see why the more I talk about the book and whatnot. But, anyways, one of the biggest things I think that is about Ready Player One that makes Ready Player One what it is is easily the absurd amount of references there are to the 80s pop culture. So, it's basically a nostalgia-fueled ride, and I think a lot of people didn't like the book for that exact reason. They thought it was too focused on the references and not enough on the actual storytelling. And being someone who has read the book three times, yes, I loved it that much, and I do have a bias for video games, to be fair. Yeah, reading it three times, I began to notice that slight obsession with the 80s referencing. You know, he used it, Ernest Cline, as a way to sort of explain his character's actions, you know, how much they geek out at everything. It comes off as fetishizing. I'll agree with that, but I definitely think it kind of goes with the spirit of the book. And it felt okay, you know? I thought the book was very solid, personally. I used to think it was great, but I think the more I read it, the more I kind of see a little bit of its flaws and how it's not the best thing ever. But, you know, I still really liked it, and a lot of the influences are very much there, and they're used very well because it doesn't feel like a derivative story with, you know, like Willy Wonka. It's not all, like, a golden ticket race. It's definitely a lot more than that. And, yeah, Ernest Klein, the author, that was his first book he had written. That was his debut novel. That's very hard to believe considering how much material was put into it, but I thought it was a pretty good job. He actually went on to co-write the screenplay with, I believe, Zach Penn, so that does kind of explain a little bit of the events that happened in the movie, but Nevertheless, it is interesting when an author does decide to write a little bit of the film. And then after that, he wrote the book Armanda. That was, I looked at the summary for that. I didn't really care to read the book, but I heard mostly bad things. And I'm like, God, this looks like a ripoff of Ender's Game. And it even references Ender's Game in the Wikipedia. And I'm like, yep, God, this is literally like Joker stealing from King of Comedy. Like, it's it's even worse than that. Like, it's the exact same plot as Ender's Game. And I just began to notice how much Ernest Klein is very much more a guy who's more influenced rather than innovates. He's not really much of an innovative author, but it was kind of interesting to see that all the influences in his book going into Ready Player One, because the more you read, the more you begin to see how much he obsesses over the 80s, and every character is essentially like that Every character is obsessed with the 80s because they have to find a clue in there that will help them win Holiday's race. And this consists of primarily of a golden egg. 
And so this was a very important concept to explore. And that's the whole thing. It's very much a race to the end. That's the whole point of the book. There's some stakes at, in risk there. And it's a mostly good book. And I'm going to be comparing both the book and the movie, which I think is a lot worse, I think. You know, it's like a what you call like a cinephile's film. It's definitely not a good film in any means. But I'll admit there were a few moments that were very entertaining. And they were like, yep, I want to go grab my PS4 controller now and just start playing my favorite video game. Like, that's how obsessed I was with the game and whatnot. And it just really got me intrigued. It got me excited, you know, it got me feeling that energy for gaming, but I, I knew it wasn't the best movie. I knew it wasn't a good movie at all, personally. But anyways, for the casting of the movies, they actually didn't do a bad job. I personally loved a lot of the castings. For example, one being uh, Ty Sheridan as Wade Watts. He's the main character. We followed throughout the story. Everything is told from his perspective. The book is a very first-person narrative, so... Everything you see is going to be from him. And luckily for us, he's an 80s geek. And that's kind of what allows you to sort of see these 80s pop culture references. And in many ways, it is a part of his character. And it definitely is what makes him... It's definitely one of his only defining personality traits, if I'm going to be honest with you. He's kind of blank other than that. But I'll get more into that later. So anyways, the book was written, the first one. That was written about nine years ago so that was before social media got really crazy i mean facebook had been released not too long before then then it was twitter instagram had came out not too long ago so social media was starting to get the big boom and whatnot and so i think ready player one really blew up in that time period because of that a lot of it was about a future where people were really immersed into their screens they're living at home basically trying to make money to support themselves and they basically spend all their time in the oasis everyone on earth because where else are you gonna go the world's ridden with poverty with war it's kind of dystopian but it's also utopian at the same time which is i think the most interesting aspect of the book the world like it's utopian when you enter the oasis but when you go out it's like god this is the worst world i'd ever lived in can we move to mars now and so I think that's what makes the book really interesting. It's a lot of it's a lot about people living in a dystopia who want to escape to a utopia where they can be whoever they want to be, as cliche as that sounds. And that's really the point of the book. It's about trying to re unlearn that and say, well, we should be living in the world more because we need to be in the world more. That's what makes us feel better. That's what gives us individuality. And that's kind of something uh, some of the actors, Ty's kind of noted about this movie book. It's very much about that. It's about identity. It's one of the biggest themes. And there were a lot of interesting things explored in the book that I can't wait to get into. I'm very excited to talk about. And so I think it's a it's it's a concept that's been done before, but it definitely has a bit of twists along the way. And it doesn't it does feel I think eventually earned. There are a few cheap moments, but nevertheless, I'm gonna crack this movie and book and explain to you why this is one of the most masturbatory 80s books I've ever seen and looked at and read three times in a row. I'm going to tell you all right now.
right? So first, I think I'm going to talk about the book because the book, there's obviously a lot of material to get into. There's a lot more to talk about because with books, as everyone knows, it's easier to explain things. That's why the book is 100%, if not 99.9% of the time, better than the movie because you get more explanation. You get a lot more going on. And it helps. You know, it just helps. And so I think one of the biggest ways I can summarize this book is 80s pop culture porn. It's basically that. It's 80s pop culture porn mixed with a Willy Wonka-esque spirit and, I guess, charm in some ways. But it's it's very much a book that you will get indulged into if you're very much obsessed with the 80s or haven't grown up in the 80s. So I think first things first, I want to get down the characters giving y'all an in-depth analysis on these people. So, Wade Owen Watts, wow, and initials. Wow, I can't believe that was the initials he come up with. Wow, Ernest Klein. It's actually pretty accurate. But yeah, he's, of course, I've told you, he's the protagonist, and he's essentially an underdog character. He's a rags-to-riches character. Instantly kind of makes him sympathetic, but, you know, you can't be too, um, you know, stereotypical, so... The best way I think Ernest Klein really tells this character is he's not an underdog because of, of circumstance. I'm going to be honest with you. It might feel like it at some points, but he never really is. He even mentions himself. He chooses to be someone who plays solo to find the egg rather than joining a group of gunters. Gunters are the people who are hunting for the egg and are trying to, you know, get it. They're trying to find the prize make billions and billions of dollars. And Wade explicitly states that he is not someone who, quote-unquote, plans up with other people. He wants to do it for himself because he wants it to be legit. This is what makes him an underdog by choice. He makes the active choice to say, fuck you, other people. I'm going to do this myself. And immediately that kind of gives you that kind of, like, determination. And you want this guy now to get it because he wants to do it himself. And that kind of makes you respect him and immediately you're on his side. I think that's one of my favorite parts about him. I mean, yes, he is poor at the start of the, the book. That makes a lot of sense because he is kind of like just living on his own or living with his aunt at that point. His mom and dad had died because of the world around him, which is why he chose to escape into the oasis, which is essentially the escape. That's the utopia described in this book. The Oasis stands for ontologically, I had to copy paste this, um, anthropocentric, I think that's how you say it, sensory immersive simulation. So basically it uses both your smell, touch, taste, um, hearing, and sight, of course, to immerse yourself into this new utopia. And in the Oasis, that is where you essentially can go on quests, you can fight other players, you can make money off real life, off tournaments there, you can shop for clothes and they instantly come to your house, you can upgrade your gear, and essentially it is a second world. And Wade, at the start of the book, he's poor, he's a level three, which he had worked up there for about five years. This book takes place five years after the contest began, so that just tells you how hard this contest was. And It's really about him being the underdog you wouldn't really expect but you kind of have to expect because he's a protagonist to hunt and search for the sag and does he win well i'll tell you later so he is essentially underdog by choice he chooses to be a soloist like i said and he does yes end up getting the girl 
but it isn't easy. You know, it's not easy that he gets the girl. It does take a lot of work, and I think that is okay if it feels earned, and it kind of does at the end of the day. And so that's really Wade. He's essentially just an underdog character who's obsessed with the 80s. There isn't really much else to him. Like, he's likable, but that's really all I can say about him. So going on to H, this is Wade's best friend. This is the voice of reason with the swagger to his or her personality. In the real world, she is a girl. He or she is a competitor in the book, in arenas. In the film, she is a repairman who does similar purposes in the book. So essentially, H is the best friend. He's kind of the one with the swagger. She is very much a voice of reason. And there is actually a really interesting backstory that Klein had for in the book that was, I think, even more interesting than Wade. She actually talks a bit about how her mother changed their entire appearance to, to white just to gain privileges in the Oasis. And that right there was immediately making me think people use the Oasis not only to become something else, they also use it to gain benefit. And that just kind of intrigued me. That whole concept of trying to change everything about you without actually changing your personality is crazy. That's like, it's like changing everything about yourself almost, except yourself. And it sounds very, um, you know, convoluted, but it's still something really interesting that I thought was happening with H's character. And so, yeah, essentially, you eventually find out H is a girl. And it kind of makes more sense in the film. There's a funnier line there. I'll get to it later. But there is a line in the film that kind of establishes that, um, well, the fact that H is kind of a girl. There is a bit of foreshadowing there. But, yeah, basically... She's also higher leveled. She fights in tournaments. She's kind of the opposite of age. She's in a very different circumstance where she isn't exactly poor, but she is chilling at a pretty solid money balance. So going on to the next character, Artemis, or Artemis, that's literally what her Oasis avatar username is. She's Wade's future love interest and crush at the beginning of the book. She runs a blog. Her name is based off of the goddess of the hunt, like Wade Owen Watts. His character's avatar is Parzival, like the guy who found the Holy Grail. That's what it's named after. It's literally named after that Holy Grail story, which is actually kind of a fun little allegorical, I guess, connection between his name and the whole plot. I thought that was kind of clever from Ernest Cline, if a bit obvious. And so... Essentially, Wade and Artemis have their own romantic arc, which does consist of a lot of the dangers of online dating in general. Like, you know, is, is she really in love with him? Is she deceiving him? Is she lying about, is she, you know, like, is she implying way less about herself? Is she trying to say she's ugly? And there's a really good romantic arc there, I think, that occurs. It does kind of drag down the story once you kind of get past, like, the first key and whatnot. But nevertheless... It is essentially a part of the story, and it's there. And I think Artemis had some character in the book, but it just, I mean, come on. She's a badass. She's a badass gamer girl. Who wouldn't want to date her, really? The next character, this is essentially the Willy Wonka character of the entire book, James Holiday. He's the dead host of the contest who had sent an invitation video inviting Oasis users to participate. He is giving away his fort fortune of half a trillion dollars. That's the price. He is the genius behind the creation of the Oasis. And he's a billionaire, but he's also a socially awkward man. And that is essentially Willy Wonka. 
he was very much that billionaire, socially awkward, very eccentric character that both Gene Wilder and Johnny Depp played. He's, he had spent his time working on his creations. That was all he did in his life. He didn't do a social life. He didn't really have a social life other than his best friend. And he was terrible at interacting with girls. Yes, he was terrible. And he used the Oasis as kind of an escape from that. And that's why he built it. That was one of his biggest reasons. Because he could be someone there that he wasn't. That he could prove himself to be a little bit more powerful. And he wanted everyone to share his love of the 80s. That was his whole like thought process of creating this competition. He wanted people to love what he loved. And that is very endearing. That is kind of an endearing aspect of Holiday himself. Because while he is kept under wraps for a good amount of the book... Our protagonist, Wade, kind of reveals more about him because he's a nerd about this stuff. He knows everything almost there is about Holiday. And he knows, like, all the bad stuff that happened in his life. And he kind of gives us some exposition about who Holiday really was as a person. How good he was, though. How much of a genius he was. I mean, a lot of geniuses are awkward. And I think we could say that about a lot of people, like, maybe, say, Nikola Tesla and... It was kind of like, that's kind of really what James Holiday is trying to represent. He is very much a genius who's socially awkward and a billionaire. It's some character you haven't seen before, but it's still nevertheless, it works here because he has a very good motivation, I think, that really fits his character and makes sense. So the final really big main character in the film, I mean, there are two other people that tag along with Wade, but they nevertheless don't really have much character development. His name's Ogden Morrow. He's Holiday's only best friend, but he was the business partner. He was basically what made that company sort. He is better at handling the social aspects of his company, so that's like all the business connections, the funding. This is practically what he does, and he's essentially how Holiday got into D&D. &D. He found his own friend group through Ogden Morrow. He was married to Kira until her death. It is revealed later that Holiday had a crush on Kira, but didn't act on his emotions because he was too awkward. This is very much explored near the end of the book and is kind of a shock value twist. And that is one of my biggest gripes, I think. There were a lot of shock value moments at the end. But now I'm going to go to the praises of this book. Now that we've covered all the characters, I've explained the plot enough to you. If not, I'll go over the plot. There are three keys you have to get. You have to get the copper key, the jade key, and the crystal key. These unlock gates. These gates give you points. The more points you get, the higher you are on the leaderboard. Once you get all three keys and you unlock the crystal door, you have to do a challenge. Once you complete the challenge and the test, I'm not going to reveal more just in case spoilers. Once you get past the test, then you make, you basically get the, you win the contest. You win half a trillion dollars and you get full control of the Oasis. I forgot to mention that. That is insane. Full control of the utopian area that basically is controlled almost like at least billions of users. All of that power in a contest with three keys. And that is essentially once again a part of the charm of this book. It uses that Willy Wonka, oh, we have five golden tickets, but you have to do something else. In this case, it's three gold, it's three keys, three gates. One key unlocks one gate, then it leads to the other. You get a clue for each key and each gate you complete, and that is how the story progresses. It progresses when someone finds it and whatnot. And so my biggest praise, I think, is the concept by far. I've already told you the concept, but 
it you know like the idea of people creating perfections of their personality with avatars is kind of a cool concept in itself it's also cool to be sucked into a whole new world that does make it very many ways the matrix even though i didn't really see it at that point it kind of is the matrix because the oasis sucks you into that world and i think also the biggest aspect the contest will you walk on this is basically the inspiration for that i already said everything i need to say here I think my biggest criticism is the poor usage of deus ex machina sometimes it can be used well and it can be done fine but it's just here it was so bad like near the end of the book these all of the characters wade ache artemis daito shoto these are the people teaming up with him they're literally on the run from the villains of this story ioi they're on the run from them because they're another comp they're basically an entire company trying to get this egg and they're doing terrible disgusting tactics to do it they're on the run from these guys and then all of a sudden ogden morrow bails them out saying oh i got a plane covering for you 30 minutes away he basically bails the characters out and you got to think well he's giving them a break but do you think there could have been another way to do this and that is kind of where i got a little annoyed i kind of understand why it was written i think he wanted climb wanted the story to just progress he wanted it to be able to you know continue and i think he wanted to wrap it up and i think he kind of rushed that part and i think the movie did a way better job of just fixing that because the movie fixed the entire pacing of the book and i'll explain more on that later but i just think also the book i've already said that and it's it's essentially 80s pop culture porn the first person's perspective is all right i actually don't mind that it's first person because we're telling the story from a poor guy, but if it was third person, I think it could have been approved. Like we could have saw Artemis' perspective of being a female badass who's watched by thousands, or even H, who had a really interesting concept there. And another problem I really had, I think, with the first person is that, well, I, I'm, I'm okay with it. I think it essentially is a smart choice. I do think it could have been interesting had it been told third person. And another thing I really want to note about this story is the white savior. There is a bit of a white savior concept in there because Wade is essentially a white character. And what he's doing is basically liberating everyone or is trying to liberate everyone from this contest and win. IOI is what's stopping him. They're the villains in this uh, book and movie. Nolan Sorrento is the CEO slash leader of them. And he is one nasty man. He is a disgusting man trying to stop these people. He's going to do any dirty tactic he knows to get it, including using money and bribing people. He almost killed Wade with bombs and explosives, and he got someone thrown off their balcony. Yeah, that's how deadly he is. He killed someone to get that prize, almost. And essentially, that is the characters. That is the story. I didn't like the. I didn't really like the book because it felt... I mean, I love the book still. I think it's solid, but it could have done better at it been a little bit more focused on trying to write a clean story but the world's really good the characters are fun the themes are interesting identity technology and its usage that's i think the biggest one technology because that's what's most present it's about how should we use this technology should we use it and abuse it see how that rhymed or should we be trying to take breaks and actually trying to fix the real world rather than trying to escape from it and outlive it in the game and the movie is a really clever line about that too and essentially, I think I want to say, I'll make my more final, my final thoughts later, but that is essentially the book. 
And that wraps up everything I have to say about the book. So it's a great book. I recommend you check it out before reading Ready Player Two. Although I've heard Ready Player Two is the same plot. So in this case, I don't really know if I should tell you to read the first, but it's worth checking out. So that's going to lead us to our first big break in this podcast. Next, we're going to be talking a bit about the movie. How will the movie differ from the book? Was the movie good? It, it sucked, by the way. And, well, did I enjoy it? Now I'm going to be doing a whole recap of it all. So I'll see y'all a bit later. Here's some rain. Going into the movie directed by Steven Spielberg, but I don't think I had to say that because he's a popular guy. So the movie definitely, like all book-to-movie adaptations, it definitely deviates from the book heavily. And I'm talking more about how things are done, and I'm talking about the entire material. But everything, the whole concept, it's the same. They did remove the gates, and I understand why they did that. That was essentially to cut time because the gates did kind of make the book a little bit longer and so they sticked it to only three keys one big gate opening that gate getting the prize and so the beginning of the movie starts with a bit of exposition from wade watts as we basically he tells us everything he tells us what the world's like he immediately establishes the situation going on it is done mostly with words so you can say it's a bit of a cop-out but nevertheless he gets us right into the story cuts right in we're introduced to his world, consists of his aunt, who's very much mean. His mother and father are still dead in this, of course. Also talks about the only person he ever really got respect from. It's actually his neighbor, who barely even knew him. But apparently the relationship in the book is completely butchered in the movie. They have one awkward interaction, and Wade's just completely ignoring her. Like a huge dickwad. He is very much still the same, I think, Wade Watts that I know from the book. He is still a nerd. He's an 80s pop culture guy. And he also is definitely still the underdog by choice. And let me first get into the performances of this movie because I think they're all pretty good. So going into the guy who plays Wade Watts, Ty Sheridan, he is the Wade Watts I imagined from the book. I kid you not. I think this was a lot to do with the okay character writing by... Ernest Klein, because he did write the film, so the characters remain faithful, but I really was able to kind of see that nerdiness portrayed by Wade. I was able to really see just what Wade's like as a character, and I think Wade Watts was perfectly nailed down by the actor here. He wasn't too attractive to where it kind of detracts. Like, if they put, like, a Brad Pitt-esque actor into the role, it would have completely ruined any chance of the role doing well, because Wade's not supposed to be an attractive hot male he's supposed to be an average looking person who's winning this contest and that does make him stand out i think amongst most i think protagonists he's not exactly an attractive person and the fact that the actor wasn't that attractive and they did he didn't look nerdy enough kind of fits his character and it and obviously ty sheridan gives a good performance he makes him likable rootable grounded and overall i did really like that 
I did love that great amount of writing there for Wade and acting. The other characters, the writing is a little bit more butchered for them compared to the book, but nevertheless, it's still there. I do think the performances and characters are also very faithful to the book. They're spot on. They're mad. There's what I imagined, I think. Although, I think one slight critique I have to have with the movie is definitely with Artemis. So the, the whole character arc between Wade and Artemis is a lot more limited, and it feels way too resolved quickly. Like, they have, like, a whole moment where, like in the book, they go to a jazz club together, and they start talking, you know, they start vibing, having a good time. All of a sudden, Wade says, I like you. And, of course, that those are dangerous words to say in the Oasis because you don't know them. And the same conflict occurs, the same argument happens. It's a little bit of some melodrama schlock. Then we go on, and Wade meets Artemis. The biggest problem I have with this change is Wade never met Artemis in the book until the end. And that's what made the relationship so significant. They had built this relationship entirely off online interaction. And that is what made the theme of the book stand out more, because it was like that. In the film, I think they changed it mostly for plot, mostly for, I think, timing and plot relevance. But I still think they should have at least made it possible where Wade couldn't interact with her and see whatever flaw that she had because it wasn't even that minor because the actress was too freaking cute. And like they basically made the problem that they almost could have made with Wade. And I don't mind her performance. I like Olivia Cook a lot. She's a good actress. She delivers an awesome performance. But just like Lena Waithe too is H, perfect, good acting right there. But I just think that was a little bit of a directorial issue I had from Spielberg himself with the, with the performances. Everything else is spot on. The villain's solid. More one-dimensional, though, than the book. It didn't really... In the book, there was a really important thing that happened where... I think it was Daito, the older brother of the... I'm not going to say uh, where they're from because I can't really... Don't want to insult too many people viewing this, but... Basically, Daito gets killed by IOI from Nolan Sorrento's orders and... I think that really showed the villainy Sorrento had and how far he was willing to go to win this contest. In the movie, I barely got that because the same thing kind of happened. They did remove that suicide, and I feel like that lowers the emotional impact. But I guess I could see why they they didn't want to have it. I think they felt like it would have been too much shock value at that point. But nevertheless, I did really not mind knowing Sorrento was a villain in this movie because of the performance himself. Uh, ben Mendelsohn, he's very good there. I and mean, you can kind of tell he really enjoys the role and he's hamming it up. And that is kind of important for a villain role. Although I do think the book too, they both didn't really have strong intentions other than to monopolize the Oasis. That was their motivation. They wanted to monopolize the Oasis and make it basically a monopoly where you have to pay for everything in there with ads. And it sucks. Essentially, they want to change the Oasis and make it monetized and not free like Holiday intended. And so getting off the performances now, let's just go into the action and visuals. This is probably the best aspect. And why isn't it? You know, shouldn't it always be the best aspect? I mean, yeah, but you also kind of don't want that to overshadow the characters and the story. And in many ways, it kind of does here because it's just so good. Like, you immediately are immersed into this new... Oh, Oasis Utopia, I don't know how I mixed up the words there, but you're immediately immersed into this new world, and you, you get the feeling that it is a new world. You see all these kind of pop culture references flying at you, and it's kind of like, obviously, 80s porn, like the book. It is nostalgia-fueled, but 
you see stuff you recognize. And it's that sense of familiarity that kind of draws you into the Oasis, just like the book. There's a sense of familiarity entering this world. And Wade gives off some exposition explaining how it works. He kind of invented ways, says the message of the movie at the beginning, which is a little annoying. But what, I mean, how else are you going to explain a world of this scope? I mean, luckily, I think the book, the movie gets a little bit better as it goes on. The book had a better introduction, but the movie still, it, it gets along better. The pacing gets better and there's less exposition going on, which leads to some of the greatest scenes with visuals. The first one is a big race in New York just to get past King Kong. And it also includes dinosaurs too. And this is kind of where Steven Spielberg got a bit meta with himself. And I think he couldn't help it because Ernest Klein included a lot of Steven Spielberg references in his book. And Steven Spielberg, he even does a little bit of that meta stuff. And he's aware of it. You could see he kind of is. He still has his amazing, um, just, you know, amazing skill for filming those action and visual sequences. It stands out amongst any other director. And that race scene really establishes that. And honestly, the way they get the chi key is a major difference, mostly because of the copyright claims. Like they had one in the book with a Blade Runner sequence. They couldn't get that rights for that for the film. So they replaced it with one of the best scenes, The Shining. We basically get a whole recre recreation of The Shining inside Ready Player One. It's nothing like the, the Shining book or movie. So don't worry about spoilers there. But basically... You enter that they enter the mansion, all the characters, they have to find the jade key in there. And it leads to such a good sequence with a lot of tension, a lot of stakes, a lot of funny moments with the characters, and you really get to spend some good time with them. And the third key, I mean, I kind of forget the movie. It is essentially a ride, only a ride really that's kind of forgettable, but they do essentially get the third key as well. It does take a lot of work, but they do eventually get it. And as they continue their journey, they begin to realize how powerful the Oasis is, how much you can get out of it. They already knew how much, of course, but they obviously got way more out of it than they intended. And it's really a cool journey for that exact reason. You're seeing all this going on. It's just so fun. It really is the best. And so... The, the, the second half of the film is easily the best because it has that whole final fight. Not only that, but it also completely removes the deus ex machina of the book. And you want to know why? Because of pacing. Steven Spielberg made the right decision. Instead of spacing the characters out all over the place in the world, he decided to keep it a little more contained and tight by having them in America. This makes the story easier to flow and it allows for less bailing out and less kind of stake removal. And there are still stakes, especially near the end with that fight sequence, which is really good, but very weightless action. That is my only flaw with the action. Now I'm going to go into the direction. I've already mentioned it a bit. Steelberg's a great action and visual director. This is by far not his best film. It's not at all, but it's still okay. It's still watchable. I can still really enjoy it and have a good time. Even if I know it is a, pretty much a bad film. It's a good film on an entertainment scale, I'll say that. And it is essentially a lot of pop culture flying at you. It has no depth, really. I think the messages are very much skewed and they're less well told. Because a lot of it is just exposition. It's not showing us what's going on. And obviously it's a problem with a lot of blockbusters. 
Spielberg does didn't write this movie though. He directed it, and he directed it very well, in my opinion. Very good direction from Spielberg. But even that couldn't save this movie from being good or from being bad. And so, yeah, writing's the biggest flaw. They did change a lot of stuff with the plot, and I think a lot of it works. Most of it really doesn't though. A lot of it doesn't work at all, actually, and that is essentially why this movie doesn't work. Wade is a lot more minimized, I think, to a blank slate. He still has the underdog thing going for him, but it's less as endearing, I think, than in the book. Artemis, too, is very much limited, as is H and all the other people, which is more or less understandable. That's the whole point. Movies, you can't capture everything. But I think it's a little unacceptable the way the movie handled it. The way characters meet is different. I've already talked about this, but I can go even more in depth about it. Wade meeting H was the only natural interaction I could see. Because that's exact that's how I'd imagine him to meet. He's completely surprised. He's like, what the heck? Are you, how are you H? And it's that kind of disbelief that actually was believable to me because how would he know? But when he meets Artemis middle way through the the movie that completely changes the human dynamic that was going on between the two and that's i think a big flaw i think with the writing there I, I mean obviously i'm making comparison but even then it wouldn't even work on a standalone point and yeah writing is the biggest flaw but i do think it also the pacing is a bit better and the editing's fine there is a lack of character development however with all characters and yes this includes a protagonist wade he is still essentially the nerd you remember from the beginning of the story. He did want to escape from the Oasis. The only thing that he does kind of differently, and you don't even see him experience this change until like the really very end after the fight, is when he literally says, oh yeah, I shut down the Oasis on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Are you kidding me? You shut down the Oasis on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and you thought that it would make us feel better? No, I'm sorry, I'm not on board with that. Not at all, and that is, I think, a big, big flaw, I think, that I had with this character. He was way too narrator. I mean, I'm glad they made him a narrator, because it actually didn't feel cheesy or corny, and it allowed us to, you know, relate to the story, but a lot of the narration was just done to get a lot of the basic exposition, world-building out of the way. I mean, I'll admit, the Oasis is a lot more of a bigger focus here than the real world. You don't really see why Wade wants to go and get billions you only see it through like one scene maybe and there yes there are many clever lines that do really establish a lot of stuff a lot of relationships a lot of funny even witty moments with the characters and it's very likable that's the best way you could describe it it's likable it's nice it's cheesy i think with ready player one the book there was a lot of cheesy moments there of geekiness the movie is a lot of the same and if you like the book stuff for that, then you're going to also like the movie too. And something I really enjoyed, and I'll continue to enjoy going forward. And so, with the whole coverage of the movie, and a lot of my recapping of the movie out of the way, I'll just say this. The movie is very different from the book. It's completely different. It's very different, and it's whether you like that different is how you're going to like this book or movie. Obviously, I like the book better than the movie. And I'll explain why a little bit later. So there you go for what I what the movie was like, what I thought the movie was like, and just my entertainment, my enjoyment. I really enjoyed it. And the references were nice, of course. 
if a bit too heavy, of course, like the book. The book has the same problems, too. But I do think the pacing was made a lot better. Some of the plot changes were a little bit better, too, because the time between the first key and the second key in the book felt like a day. Like, it was so long, and it felt very, very slow the first time reading that. And I get it was kind of to portray Wade's kind of, you know, change in fame and how fame really changes him. But it's done in such a slow manner, and I can't follow this book if it's about the contest. And the fact that he kind of forgets about the contest in the book was a little interesting. It was an obstacle. His fame was in many ways an obstacle. But in the movie, he doesn't really start out too much like that. He isn't really going to school. He's still kind of mildly rich, but not like supremely rich. But he's still going for this contest. That's his motivation. His motivation is to get out of wherever he was living in the book and just escape. In the movie, it is a bit of the same, but it's less as defined. And so that's my opinion on the movie. So now I'm going to give you all my take. I'm going to give you all my opinion on all this with the book and movie. I think I've made it clear. The book is 10 times better. And obviously, come on, you guys were expecting this answer. And it's more solid. It's solid. It's way more than just 80s references, although I did describe it as 80s pop culture porn. It is. It does have a little more under the surface, I think. I think in the intro, there was a lot more cleared up. There was a lot more of a theme going down. There was a lot more of a world that I was able to see. In the movie, I got that, but not as much. And there was a lot of strong drama and plot. The plot is, I think, of course, very strong because while it does take some inspiration from prior source material, it decides to build upon that and not be a derivative story. And for that, it deserves a lot of praise. The drama between characters is well done. It's not a character-driven story by any means, but the drama is still really, I think, solid and well done. As you really do feel Wade Watts' commitment just to getting this egg. He tries to get the Easter egg, and it's a really cool way how the movie and book end where it's about finding that first Easter egg, which is a credit for the game designers, and it was just really cool to see people try to appreciate Holiday for who he was. A genius, obviously socially awkward, but he wanted them to love what he loved, and that's, I think, something that all kids can relate to. Friends, even. Friends want their own friends to like what they love, and... That's something really important in anything, and I that's why I liked Holiday so much as a character. I was so endeared to him because of that, and that's, I think, what separates him a bit from Willy Wonka and doesn't make him entirely like him. Well, they are both surface-level characters. Well, they both have the same traits surface-level-wise. They both definitely have different motivations. Willy Wonka was a bit more mysterious. He kind of wanted people to view this world. He wanted people to have an imagination. Holiday... Obviously, he wanted the same things. He wanted people to imagine and be whoever they wanted to be. But he also wanted people to like it. He wanted people to love it. Willy Wonka didn't care about whether they loved it or not. He just wanted them to experience it. Holiday wanted him to love it. He didn't accept hate, really. That, I don't know if that's really what I want to say about Holiday, but that's the best way I can describe it. Another thing I think I, a reason why the book's better is it had bold decisions. One of the biggest bold decisions I think I saw was 
making Wade kind of like sideline a bit when he starts kind of getting taken over by the fame, it kind of really shows how overwhelmed he was, I think, because of the fact he was such a rag to rich tale and how the other characters act too. Like H has a bit of a bold decision when she, when you realize it's a girl and you're like, what all this time? And it doesn't even feel like shock value because it works in the movie. There's even a funny little foreshadowed line. I was going to bring up where H says to Parzival, Hmm. Yeah. We finish each other's sentences too. That kind of implies that, H was a bit of a girl because this is when Parzival was talking about his crush with Artemis. And that's where H was saying, oh, yeah, we finished each other's sentences, too. And that was a little clever detail, I think, that really cleared up, I think, the relationship dynamic between Wade and H. Yeah, the relationship dynamics were better. It also had a better grasp on that theme of technology, utopia, dystopia, all that stuff. I've gotten into that. But I think from what I took out of this book... Here's what I think the biggest message of this book is. Living in perfection and constantly living and wanting perfection, it makes us forget about not only our own perfections, imperfections, but other imperfections. It kind of makes us forget how much everything is not perfect. And for Wade, you kind of see that. You see him go into a world of perfection wanting to forget all the terrible shit going on outside, wanting to forget the poverty, the war, the disease, the lack of resources, the power, you know, like the power stuff, the lack of power. And it's that kind of strive for perfection that they want to forget the imperfection is what I think is the biggest message of this whole book. And it's, I think, the strongest message. Obviously, you could make another point saying who you are in reality makes your individuality special and that we shouldn't be spending our time in the Oasis. But I don't think that's what Klein was only digging for. He wanted us to realize that we shouldn't be going for a living perfection. He doesn't want us to live in a utopia because that would be, you know, that'd be terrible. He wants us to understand that we should be going out to the world of imperfection because we need to fix that. We shouldn't be forgetting about that. We shouldn't be trying to only do one thing and indulge in that without going to the other. This is why everyone's obsessed with the 80s. They're indulging in it because it's they think it's a better world. It's a much more perfect world. It's a world that uh, the adults grew up in that was so much better. Wade even makes a good argument early on saying those people had it lucky. Holiday probably had it lucky because they had all the resources they needed at that time. And that's, I think, one of the biggest messages that book really had. Don't indulge in something that's just getting – that's perfect. Try to do something more that's going to fix things. And the message of the book was there. That's what I liked. So going on to the movie, here's my take on it. It's 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 not a good movie. I'd still watch it, though, after you read the book, because why not? It's Steven Spielberg. But the only thing I think it does better is the, the pacing is, like I've said, it's ten times better. And the plot changes are excellent. The Shining sequence is the best sequence, and that was the only big change I really liked because it improved upon the source material in the sense that it actually felt like a journey. You actually were completely terrified, and you didn't know where they were going to go because it was kind of unpredictable. And there are even some funny moments where IOI is trying to get the key, and they keep getting killed, and it's kind of funny to see them fail. And that's another thing Spielberg was always really good at. He's really good at touching that kind of child's heart and child wonder that's 
always been a specialty. And he uses that to his advantage here with a book literally about that. It's about indulging yourself into childhood fantasy. And the book was also a childhood fantasy in many ways. And Steven Spielberg knew how to touch that. He was the perfect person to direct this. Seriously. That's why I think the direction is so good too. Because of the fact that he manages to still touch your heart with those little slight, slight comedic moments. In the final battle, for example, when Chucky starts killing everyone, yes, the doll Chucky starts killing everyone in the head, stabbing them, the IOI people. You see them in the real world getting killed, and it kind of makes you laugh because you're like, seriously, a whole company is losing to one guy who is literally living in a van at one point? It's just, it's those little comedic moments that Spielberg knows how to nail. Obviously, there's no depth. I'll agree with that. It's not a book with movie with depth, but it's an entertaining movie. It's a movie with action, with okay visuals. The action is weightless. That is obviously a fault with me. I think the characters remain faithful in personality, mostly because Ernest Klein had co-written the book. Very good choice there to rewrite. I think if you're going to rewrite any movie based on the book, you got to bring the author in. That's the only way it's going to work. That's my opinion, though. Artemis' casting was a bit too beautiful, despite okay performance. Wade Watts was nailed down. I've mentioned this. He's nailed down to the core here. Another thing I think I want to mention is that the ending is a slightly more satisfying ending, in my opinion. The way the book ended, it just, it was open-ended, all right? It was a little more open-ended. I mean, obviously, the arc between Wade and Artemis was completed. They're implied to be dating soon. And Wade even says... In that moment, I had no need to go back into the Oasis. And that does kind of fulfill his arc as a character. In the movie, you didn't really get that because the movie, it kind of continued on that ending. But it is a little more satisfying because you do have that Spielbergian musical touch. The score is a little, you know, it's it's there. It's a kind of cliche, but it's whatever. It ends with Wade and Artemis kissing, making out, and it's literally him narrating in the midst of them making out. So now imagine how cheesy that is. Oh my god, it made me cringe. But yeah, Wade literally narrates the ending saying that he shut down the servers at Oasis on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I'm thinking, I've already told you, I was a little frustrated with this choice that um, that Wade made. But I understand why they included that. I think he wanted people to actually, he even says it, he wants people to be in the real world. He wants people to actually experience shit. And... It's a smart decision. He made a really good decision, I think, there. And it kind of does enhance that theme of we shouldn't be indulging too much in our technology. So I think that is some way that the message was somewhat put in there. So Spielberg's film, I've mentioned this, it's pretty meta. He directed some of the 80s flicks that were included in here. I mean, also 90s because you got Jurassic Park and whatnot. But you can even see other stuff going on, too. And I think... Another thing I really want to make a big point on is, in some ways, Ready Player One was actually very is very timely. It's a very timely book, I think. We are living in like Ready Player One, I think, already because, I mean, I could make a comparison to COVID here. I could make a really beautiful biblical analogy and allegory, but I'm not gonna. I think the best way I'm gonna describe it is without realistic AR. We're kind of living in a world where we're already so involved with technology online. We're not really going out to take initiative of certain actions. For example, you're literally sending an email on a computer. When 
back then, like the 80s, 70s, 60s, you were walking physically, going to the mailbox or the postal office, and you were sending what you were going to get. All right? Now, Ready Player One kind of is timely in the sense that it does expand on that concept and now says, now imagine you do all that on a computer at home. And it's that timely aspect of Ready Player One that really sticks with you, I think, in at the end of the day. And I think Ready Player One is a very timely book. That's why I think you should read it. It's very timely. And oh, another funny thing I noticed is that online school is a thing now. In the book, the Oasis had its own school on a planet called Ludus. And now you're thinking, we're already doing that. We're already doing that with Google Meets and Zooms. And it's kind of funny how much this book kind of predicted a little bit of the future going on. I mean, even at home, we're still indulging in our video games. And we're participating in these tournaments at our own household, at our own expense. People are playing Fortnite, COD, yes, I mentioned those games, at home for tournaments for millions of dollars. That's essentially what the Oasis kind of is in some ways. And that is why I think the themes of the book are great. They're great. They're well explored. Overall, the book's better. Just read the book. You'll see what I mean. It's a good book. I'm excited to read Ready Player 2 when it happens. I might make a little podcast on that, but I'm not even sure at this point. All I guotta say is it's a solid book, a slightly, if not way worse movie, but I still recommend you check out both. I've already cracked, I think. I've already done the movie act on crack of Ready Player One and book and movie. So I think for the next podcast episode, I'm going to give you a little bit of a teaser here and say it's going to be a little bit about Netflix. I'm going to be talking a lot about Netflix and just my qualms, but also a lot of my praises from Netflix as a medium. And I'll, while there, I'll talk a little bit about the college stuff I participated in this fall, but I won't go too much into depth because college stuff is boring. Movies are fun. They give you a jolt. They give you a crack like Zeus. And so that's going to do it for the podcast. I hope you all enjoyed listening. I am still trying to get stuff for the mic and improve that. But nevertheless, I'm having a great time making these podcasts. So without further ado, everyone, have a great day, night, wherever you're listening to this. Keep cracking. Keep cracking whatever you're doing. Crack the movie. Crack whatever you're solving, guys. Keep cracking. Stay fresh.